This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, dear listeners, we're back. We are back. Oh my goodness. We have been, uh, we have been busy, Absent. We've been absent. We're like we sure have been absent. Absent parents, latchkey listeners out there having to draw their own conclusions uh, about stuff. Latchkey listeners having to record their own podcast and listen to them back. It's so sad. It's so you hate to see it happen. Dear listeners, they're thank all you like, I don't know. How do I feel about chemtrails again? I hate them. That's right. <laughs> yes, thank God. Thank you so much for your patience. We have been extremely busy here over at the Mad Scientist Podcast. Me with starting a new job, and Marie with just living that that gangsta lifestyle. That gangsta lifestyle that is the dream of so many, the so dream. many middle-aged white ladies. The dream. Now, what we're going <laughs> to yeah. be doing in order to kind of fill in some of these gaps here between episode drops is we are going to start recording what we're calling a million beers. Yes. Which will be Marie and I spending quick 15 minutes. We're going to put a timer on ourselves. 15 minute mini-sodes where we will discuss and basically rant about something occurring in pop culture or the news or in science or whatever kind of that week. So that's the plan. And uh, we're sticking to it. Yes. And it's going to be super fun. So listeners, if you have something that you're like, hey, you know what? I bet this would really tick them off to talk about. Lay it on a slim. We want to hear about it. Like we already have so many other things that we uh, that uh, irk and irk and amuse us equally that we're ready to just lay out there like we've been drinking all day, which is kind yeah. of the premise of a million beers. It's going to be wonderful. All right. Let's get into uh, Ted Kaczynski part three. Now, this episode, I had I had a couple titles for Marie. Mm. The first one, and this is the one I think I'm going to go with, is Cabin in the Woods with All His Friends. <laughs> But then, I, but then I also had another one that I thought of while writing up this episode in LAX, which was um, from math to never taking a bath. <laughs> I don't know which one I like better. I think I think Cabin in the Woods with all his friends is funnier, though, because, you know, it takes a little bit of knowledge of the case. Anyways, Jake, roll the tape. Math to never taking a bath is pretty good. Again, if if Ted Kaczynski is, is something that we should be laughing at, that is pretty good. Both no. of them are pretty good. Both of Thank them are you. pretty good. Thank you. I don't oh, think they were jokes that Kaczynski himself would have found funny. No. But I no. think they're great. No, they are very funny. <sighs> All right. So at the end of last episode, uh, Ted Kaczynski had just graduated from Harvard. Yes. And so he was deciding kind of what he wanted to do. And so what he ended up centering on was going to graduate school. And uh, so trying to become, uh, you know, a head of the field or a leader in the field of mathematics, which was the field that he really fell in love with, 
I mean, he, he'd always had a love of it, right? We talked about that calculus book he carried around as a kid. Mm-hmm. But so this is really where he starts to be very involved in real serious academia. Now, for the listeners that kind of don't know, the way that graduate school works, we've kind of talked about it here on the show a couple of times, but for newer listeners, generally the way that graduate school programs work is you come in as an undergrad, um, they will oftentimes give you a scholarship or a stipend to do research, depends on the field, of course, right? But so you'll get money to kind of live and research, and that money comes from either teaching or from doing research in a laboratory. Now, in a mathematics department, it's a little bit harder you know, there's not really labs to work in, right, in a, in a mathematics world, so to speak. So a lot of the times you're getting your money from teaching courses or you're just lucky enough to have a scholarship. And so then you're able to, um, you know, you're just able to kind of do your work uh, while being, you know, having your expenses kind of paid for to some extent. Mm-hmm. Now, back in the 1960s, so Ted graduates from Harvard in 62. And immediately enrolls in graduate school, and he's at the mathematics department at the University of Michigan, which is uh, and was one of the most prestigious mathematics departments in the country. Now, originally, he was involved or he was enrolled in what is uh, a program for master's degree candidates. So the general academic kind of uh, pedigree course is bachelor's degree, then a master's degree is the next highest, then a PhD is the next highest, then after that is either a postdoctoral position. Um, and then a professorship or just straight to a professorship. So he's enrolled as a master's candidate in mathematics there, but he is, he's doing phenomenally well, right? So that kind of student who we talked about at Harvard where, you know, he was having a little bit of trouble. He wasn't really mm-hmm. doing all that great in his coursework. Um, that student is, that's not the Ted Kaczynski that they found at Michigan, right? He was, you know, hitting it on all cylinders, doing really great work and actually doing some wonderful, uh, doing some wonderful academic work as a Mm -hmm. master's student. So this is again, a quote from prisoner of rage, that article we keep going back to. It's really phenomenal. So quote, mathematics seemed to be the only thing he was interested in, said professor Peter L. Duran, who taught one of Mr. Kaczynski's first year courses. He said he was not aware of Mr. Kaczynski having any social life, but did not regard that as unusual. A lot of mathematicians are a little bit strange in one way or another, he said. It goes with creativity. And I'm sure he said that while, like, I don't know, you know, playing with a slide whistle or something. A lot of mathematicians are weird. Um, (laughs) They're such a wacky bunch. So weird. uh, Yeah, I mean, it's not the same as being, like, a creative arts major, right? I mean, there's, like, yeah, anyways, go ahead. Yeah, there's there's creativity, but it's not the, it's not... It's it's the creativity to solve a problem in an analytical way, but it still right. it still does require creativity, right? Let's not agreed. We can't agreed. take away no, from that at all. Wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly. Yeah. So, um, the prof- another professor, George Peranian, would say he did not make mistakes. He was very persistent in his work. If a problem was hard, he worked harder. He was easily the top student or one of the tops. And he was also still very young at this time, too. Like, when we talk about grad school, I tend to skew, like, oh, he was, you know, he was a little older. But, again, him going into Harvard at a very young age, he would have been graduating. When he went to Michigan, he would have been, like, 20, right? Yeah, he was so around 20 Still not old. able to drink in no. the parlance <laughs> of our terms today, right? <laughs> no, no. So, um, he was just... 
he was just wonder, like just doing wonderfully, right? So another, this is again from that George Perini, and he says, um, another mathematician, a very competent man, had worked with me on a problem um, and had gotten nowhere on it, he recalled. But Mr. Kaczynski solved it and submitted his solution to academic journals for publication without telling his professors or classmates. Um, they found out about his publication work by reading about them in the top mathematics journals of the time. You know, he didn't tell anybody. He didn't talk about it with his professors. He didn't ask them for help. He just suddenly was a published author in this scientific discipline, which is crazy, right? The, the article process is, I mean, I'm sure it's not, I'm sure it wasn't as kind of rigorous with all the technological checks that have to occur, um, you know, nowadays to get published in an art in a journal, but the peer review process is extremely difficult. Getting it through it all is a, is a monumental achievement for any scientist. And for, uh, for this, this guy who was just a master's student working on his own, it's, it's, it's unheard yeah. of. It's in absolutely mathematics, unheard of. Right? In mathematics, which is not, again, a, not an easy field. You know, yeah. it's, you get, there's jokes. There's always these kind of studies that go out where, you know, someone will publish in like a whatever, in like a sociology or gender studies journal or something or whatever. And it's a bunch of gobbledygook, right? They'll just put random words together in semi-coherent fashion and it'll be published, but that's not a good journal, right? That's <laughs> it's, those are studies designed to try to, you know, mock a field, right? Um, this was, these were published publications in serious journals that were no, you know, his professors read his articles and were like, oh my God, this is the kid in my class. You know, it's just, it's a crazy thing that it even happened. Oh, he's going to go on to do amazing things. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. So this is from, this is again from Prisoner of Rage. So, um, David Kaczynski said there had always been a covertness in his brother's creative work. It was something he did not talk about. David recalled. Fellow students were awed. This is about him publishing. While most of us were just trying to learn how to arrange logical statements into coherent arguments, Ted was quietly solving open problems and creating new mathematics, says Joel H. Shapiro, now a mathematics professor at Michigan State University. It was as if he could write poetry while the rest of us were trying to learn grammar, end quote. God. So Ted then would be accepted pretty directly into the PhD program, right? They were like, well, you're already publishing stuff. You clearly can do research on your own. Um, please, please make our Stay shiny here. name even shinier, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, so he starts a PhD program and he works there for three years. And it's during this period that he is really the most productive academically, right? I mean, as you can imagine, right? So I just kind of wanted to give you guys kind of a taste quick. So these are the, these are the works that he published in his uh, time. Okay. So, um, these, so these two here were published, uh, these two were published before he was a PhD student. So Kaczynski TJ, 1964, another proof of Wedderburn's theorem. And then 1964 distributivity and negative one X equals negative X. So, okay. And those are American in American, uh, mathematics monthly. Then in 1965, he publishes boundary functions for functions defined in a disk in the journal of mathematics and mechanics, excuse me, um, then distributivity and that same kind of problem, but a new solution of that same problem. 
Then in 66, he publishes on boundary property of continuous functions. Um, 67, he publishes boundary functions, which is his abstract of his doctoral dissertation. So, and that's just what he publishes uh, while a PhD student, right? Right. So they were saying the article that I read about this says that if you Google boundary functions, just the name under the thesis now, the third result is an excerpt from his thesis. Oh, absolutely. Right. So Which this is insane. It's 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 amazing. Right. So um, this is actually his 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 thesis is still considered. So his thesis, the, the field that he worked in boundary functions are a, they're a little bit like most advanced mathematics. They're hard to describe. Right. To kind of um, even for, you know, even like, let's say, OK, so I'm I'm relatively more trained than the average person in mathematics. Right. Mm-hmm. And me reading his thesis, it's like, what is you know what I mean? Like, what is he talking about? Right. Um, it takes like a couple, like 10 read throughs to really get anything useful out of it. Right. Now, the field that he was working in, though, essentially is so. OK, first off. Originally, he was working on a different problem for his PhD thesis, but then he found out like in the middle of it that someone else had already solved the problem he was working on. And the reason that this happened essentially was that he didn't talk to anybody about his work. (laughs) He just he just started solving a problem he thought was interesting and then someone else did it already. And he's like, dang, well, I guess I got to do something new. And so he just started working on something different. Right. But it's like it's it's insane to me to think that he had that. If first off, if I found out halfway through my PhD that someone had already done the work I was doing, I would have I probably would have just left with a master's degree. You know what I mean? Like it's it's one of those things that it's like you've already wasted so much time. And do you really want to stay another you know, do you really want to double your time in grad school? Right. Yeah. It's like you've you've dedicated all of your all of your thought process, all of your research, everything to one thing to switch gears is like, I can imagine that that's almost unheard of or not unheard of, but it's not, it's definitely not something that would be easy to do. Or I would even think with mathematics too, in some ways, the switching of the gears and taking on an entirely new project would be just almost more arduous to do so. Yeah, it's exactly. It, it just ends up being a, Again, a, a nearly impossible thing, right, to, to, to yes. come back from. So. But he was okay. all, oh, well. Yeah, essentially he I was, was like, I free afternoon. Let me just, let me just finger through some stuff. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's so strange, right? So the work, the work that he did, though, these boundary functions, essentially what they kind of deal with is, um, so imagine, imagine a normal. Okay, imagine a car driving on a road, mm-hmm. right? The, f- the kind of equations you would, do, you would use to describe that essentially assume that if the car continues driving forward, right, that its position along the road will change with time. But unless there's a hill or something, its, it's, it's kind of height up and down will not change with time. Make sense? Yeah. So, okay, so the car system, that car system on a flat road is essentially a, uh, it's kind of like a a two-dimensional problem 
where you have uh, you have kind of the distance away from your starting point, and then you also have kind of the distance you know to the left or to the right that it drives. Mm-hmm. Right. And of course you always have time. So time is like consistent throughout all of these systems that we're going to talk about. So time always exists essentially, right? A kind of a right. silly thing to say. All right. What if we looked at, instead of a car, what if we were looking at an airplane going fast enough that the curvature of the earth became apparent? Okay. Mm-hmm. So imagine your car now is not driving on a flat road, but imagine a car driving on a cylinder. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, when the car drives around, it will change its position in Y relative to where you're starting from. So if you just stood, if you just stayed where the car was and you saw it drive over the cylinder, it would seem to go up and then it would seem to go down again. Right? Right. Okay. That is what's called a cylindrical coordinate system. Oh, dear God. Okay, I'm so still it's, with you. Okay, so essentially, it's just another way of looking at how we can describe the physics of a system. Right. right? So, for like a car, we would use what's known as a, a Cartesian or square system. Right, a rectangular system. Because it's all flat, right? So you got, you got height that goes up and down, you got mm-hmm. width that goes left mm-hmm. and right, and then you got distance that goes kind of, you know, forward and back, Right. But let's say yes, you're working your axes, in, right? Exactly. Okay. But if you're if you're say solving for like the flow of liquid in a pipe, right? It no, it doesn't make sense to talk about left and right in a pipe, right? Yeah, because it makes a pipe no difference. Right, a pipe is circular. So instead, you talk about the distance from your starting point. You talk about how far from the center of the disc you are or from the uh, cylinder, the pipe you are. Mm-hmm. And you talk about an angle that is too complicated to explain on this podcast. <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. No, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay. Now you can also look at a spherical system. Okay. Oh my God. So a good example of that would be like, imagine you were trying to measure the a snow globe. Uh, well, okay, a snow globe is an okay example, but imagine you're trying to measure the energy coming from the sun, right? Aww, the like energy is... Okay, no, I'm with you, I'm with you. <laughs> the energy is radiating from a central point at a constant rate, but the way that the energy changes, like, again, if you're 100 feet, or if you're a, a, 100 light years to the left or right of the sun, that doesn't make a big difference. What makes the difference is how far it's away distant. from the center yep. of the sun you are. Makes so sense. He, this is what he did for. This is like what he decided <laughs> to switch to when he yeah, was like, so what, "Oh well, they so, figured this other stuff out. Let me just go figure out this stuff." Yeah. So what? So essentially, what he was doing was like, imagine you have on your on your spherical system. So he wasn't even doing spheres or cylinders, which are pretty normal. He was working on curved discs. Dear God. Okay. So you have a weird geometry of your space. And then you start looking at how you can make definitions for, you know, so, you know, for instance, in a circle that the area of the circle is pi times the radius squared. Yes. Right. I actually do remember that one. Okay. And then the circumference, the area around the whole circle Mm -hmm. is two pi R. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's one that's a little bit more unnecessarily knowable, but whatever. Right. Essentially what Ted was trying to do was looking at, at other kinds of functions 
that define or relate the uh, the geometry of that curved disk to each other. Okay, so like like area, but imagine it's even more complicated. It's like you know um, these things called whatever. It doesn't really matter what they're called, right? But essentially, he was working on very very complicated geometry uh, kind of problems. So what okay? would you use this in? Like, what's I don't mean to be all. You know, no, 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 it's a, it's a super all good question. Boring right? and down to earth about it. But like, what would you be using this stuff for in a real world scenario? <laughs> right. How, how many, how does this buy me cheeseburgers, Chris? So, well, if I'm not, if, if I don't turn to like wiping out humanity because of a manifesto for whatever reasons, like, what else can I do with this? Okay. So a lot of very complicated mathematics, it turns mm -hmm. out. Um, that seems like it has no place in real world applications. We, we can use our, we can use our knowledge of complex geometries and kind of complex fields, right? So these space, mm -hmm. these kind of spatial temporal fields, um, we can use that knowledge to then solve for problems that are currently unsolvable using say like the cylindrical or the spherical or the other coordinate systems. Okay. Right. So for example, it would be really, really complicated and difficult to describe the energy coming from the sun. If you had a, a single, like a spherical source, like the sun that then you were trying to model the energy um, as it changes with distance coming from that thing that would be really difficult with a, with only using like height, width and, uh, you know, length, right. Mm -hmm. It would be, you would have to start using things like, you know, sine and cosine functions to make that make sense. Right. Yeah. But I think what I was, what I was getting you, at was like, what kind of field, like, no, no. So that's, that's what I'm yeah. getting at though. What I'm getting, I'm getting to gone that. into. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. So essentially what you can do is you can transform your systems from, simple geometries to complex ones that then makes the mathematics easier. So instead of say like, you know, length, now you have radius that you transform into. Um, and that makes it easier to solve those problems. So the field that Ted might've worked in, I mean, as a mathematician, you a lot of times become a professor and that's what Ted ended up doing. Mm -hmm. But you could also use these things for say, um, modeling the stock market, right. Or solving mm -hmm. for the, um, mm -hmm. solving for the, the distance and the way that rockets will actually travel. And that's actually what a lot of mathematicians at Michigan did at this time period. Right. Right. You could go into applied, uh, you could go into applied physics, right. Or applied engineering mathematics. And so you could work on things like say, you know, so that system I just described, um, that's a, chem a, a very standard chemical engineering problem, right? It's now standard. It wasn't mm -hmm. standard at the time. At the time we did not know how to do that really efficiently mathematically. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you would go into, you know, creating computers at this time period, right? The creation of computational methods for physics and for kind of science generally was extremely, extremely um, important, right? This is really the time, this kind of late 60s, early 70s is when that stuff really started to become a thing, right? And so yeah. forget, forget, say, like personal computing, um, mathematicians were needed to, you know, figure out how to transform and send information using binary or hexadecimal. Right. So yeah. 
this is the kind of stuff that he would have been working on. And that's and really his work itself is in a field of mathematics that is very particular and specific. And it's one of those things where math is weird because it, it doesn't have a use until it does. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just strange because all of it seems very bent towards technology in some ways or furthering a technological end, which he was ended up being very opposed to. Well, so, okay, so actually that's, it's very interesting you say that, right? Because Mm -hmm. it is exactly what led him to turn away from mathematics. So Which is sad, because it's also beautiful. It's like this, he, it's clearly like an entire almost language and discipline that is amazing unto itself, but has this applicable purpose that he he clearly doesn't, wouldn't, you know, like rockets and, and (laughs) the internet and computers probably weren't high on his list of things that he wanted to have in that cabin at the end of the day. Right. My favorite things. No, I mean, it's crazy. Well, a few of my favorite things. Right. Sorry. Kaczynski version. Sorry. Keep Charges going. and shrapnel and lots of wood pieces. Um, <laughs> you know, his, uh, yeah, it's cra- It is oh, interesting. Right. Yeah. It's also, it's also clear that he was really good at it. Right. I mean, mathematics, that's another thing too. For those of you in like, you know, a field where publishing is very, you know, not common necessarily because it's not really common for anybody. But for, you know, in modern day, like five publications during a Ph.D. is like pretty it's not average. It's good. But in some fields, it's it's pretty average. Right. Like in my field, Mm -hmm. um, carbon dioxide capture, it's like it's like middling. You know what I mean? It's like it's your good. You have. You didn't do you nothing in your PhD. In? Is that what you're saying? No, you didn't phone it in. Uh, Marie, that's how many peanuts. I have five publications. Okay, Marie. Oh, you're right. not, you're not yeah, phoning it in, but uh, you know, you're not exactly you're, like, you're, you're not, really you're not, it's not, you're, you're, you're give a shitter's not all the way turned on. No, you're just okay. Right. You're just, whatever. So anyways, so, um, so he, but at this time and in mathematics, Two publications a year is extra. It's very, very good. That is a very respectable number of papers. It is, um, especially for someone who's just a student. That's it's amazing. Okay, especially for somebody who's le- he's younger than twenty five. Yes, he absolutely is. I mean, it's. I mean, again, if we if we just want to even step back a, a little bit more, like, what were you doing when you were twenty? I mean, maybe you yourself. Are a exceptional achiever in this type of thing, but if you look at sort of the general, like, you know, discipline of a twenty-year-old, it's not putting out mathematics to this degree or like showing up for class on the most, you know, most days. It's no. to me that's just the other thing. It's like the context of his age and his emotional vulnerability and maturity in this is just yeah, it's, insane. It's pretty wild. So yeah. okay, sorry. No, no, it's all good. So. At the time period, Michigan, though, was an extremely politically charged campus. I mean, most campuses Mm. were, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Vietnam is raging, right? There's other kind of issues, right? I mean, there's there's, um, just all kinds of things, right? There's the the fight for equality and civil rights. There is kind of the budding LGBTQ issues that were starting to really come to the forefront here. Maybe not so much in Michigan necessarily, but on college campuses across the country, yeah. right? Yeah. Still. Um, mm-hmm. And there's also, though, a very large part of the engineering and um, part of kind of the 
the more, let's say, conservative fields that are very pro, um, pro-American foreign policy, right? These people are going on to work at companies that manufacture weapons and, and deliver rockets and whatever, right? They're yes. going into military contracts. And so actually uh, at Michigan, there was a, a program where mathematicians and other engineering kind of, you know, STEM students could work for a company that was developing rocketry systems mm-hmm. for, for weaponry, right? And so Ted really never became involved in either of them, right? He didn't become part of either the kind of, you know, more conservative side or the more liberal side, anti-war sentiment, anti-technology sentiment. He just kind of didn't buy into either side at this point, as far as we can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it would be difficult to say that it didn't, it had to have some effect on him. Right. He was at least seeing it and being exposed to it. On Absolutely. Daily basis. Yeah. So he ends up uh, graduating in 1967. He is 25 years old. His, his thesis boundary functions wins an award for being the best thesis in the mathematics department that year. Right. And it's considered one of the best thesis. You know, it's considered one of the best pieces of work that many of these professors have ever been a part of. Right there, they they cannot say enough about Mr. Kaczynski, and so he ends up becoming a professor in mathematics at Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, which has been one of the major institutions of of research, um, in the world, you know, for since forever. Right, it is an extremely <laughs> prestigious honor to even go to Berkeley, and then on top of that, it's an it's crazy to think that he would become a a professor at twenty five. Yes. Right. That's nuts. It's completely unheard of. Yes. He's the youngest. He is the youngest professor in the college's history, even still to this day. That's insane. And also noted Berkeley at the time. Very liberal. Still still liberal, but especially at that point in the 60s, extremely yes. liberal. Yes. So here's a quote about uh, his time at Berkeley from Prisoner of Rage. So, quote. Um, Student questionnaires suggest that Mr. Kaczynski's students, who were only a few years younger, did not like him. They called his lectures next to useless, straight out of the textbook. Despite small classes, they said he did not seem to care for them or their concerns. He absolutely refuses to answer questions, one wrote. Faculty colleagues also called him standoffish. Once, after playing host of the department's weekly faculty seminar, he declined to accompany the others for the traditional beer and pizza. Most could not even remember him, and those who did called him shy, quiet, and withdrawn. Lance W. Small, an assistant professor at the time, said there were about 60 members of the mathematics department. I can go down and probably tell you something about every one of those people and picture them in my mind, but I can't recollect this guy, nor does anybody I know recollect him. Still, Mr. Kaczynski was apparently well-regarded by his superiors. Calvin Moore, who was vice chairman of the department, said Mr. Kaczynski got off to a promising start. In 1968, another of his articles, Note on a Problem of Alan Sutcliffe, appeared in Mathematics Magazine. In September 1968, at the start of his second academic year at Berkeley, Mr. Kaczynski was elevated to assistant professor, a sign that he was regarded as on track for tenure. Oh my God. Outside of his, outside of his classroom, he spent most of his time writing. In 1969, he published two more articles in the, ver- in the journals of the American Mathematical Society. That's a very respectable output, and they're in very good journals, Mr. Small said. 
Despite his promising future, Mr. Kaczynski resigned at the end of the term on June 30th, 1969. He did not give a reason either to his colleagues or to his family, end quote. Yeah, because he didn't want to go out for pizza and beer with a bunch of idiots. <laughs> it's really what it comes down. He was I thinking mean, about bombing. Come on. Well, I mean, I just it's amazing because it's like you have this entity in him, right? That is so rarefied, that is so like he clearly is like geared towards this genius. But then you have to like part of being a professor as you know, I mean, as I can only imagine, but is you have to you have to be able to listen to what someone is asking you, right? You have to be able yeah. to engage an audience. And he clearly was like, I don't, why? Why would I even care about that? Why is that even of interest to me? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So what the reason the reason he would give when people asked him later on why he left was that he did not. When he looked at students, what he saw were future bomb makers. He saw people who were going to destroy the planet and kill people, even if they didn't mean to. Mm -hmm. Right. He thought these were people that were going to go off and create the engines of destruction that would ruin the world. They were fodder. They were the problem. And in some ways, he's kind of right. Oh, my God. Right. Like, I mean, it's, you know, but it's but it's just it's just the thing with if your definition of what ruining the world is, is creating technology. Right. What? That's exactly what these people did. Right. It's what I engineering mean, so, is. You, but are a professor you were you taught students i mean isn't the idea not necessarily to prescribe what is their outcome is going to be but to give them the education to make up their own decisions no absolutely listen, i mean listen, even he, higher education he, he, he I, I did mean, not have listen he, he wasn't did not necessarily right on no. that degree i mean <laughs> no no he did not have the right attitude. Let's say that, okay? Not a good attitude in this guy. He wasn't what you would call a people person. No, not a happy camper. But, you know, in some ways, though, his his whole thing, so... his but yet views, strangely identifiable. Is kind of right, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sorry. Now, he never, oh again, that's, that answer, though, that, oh, their future, they're, you know, they're going to ruin the world, they're going to make bombs, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, like you're saying, Marie, that argument falls flat, right? Like... Ted, you went to school, right? Like you went to school. Your brother went to school. Uh, Lots of people go, you know, a lot of the people that he looked up to as figures in, you know, not necessarily, let's say the sciences, but in say the ecological movement or in, you know, all these people that I'm sure he would have looked up to, including uh, someone we'll be covering in a series coming up soon. If you can guess it, you get a sticker. Um, some of these scientists that he he would have looked up to, you know, they they were students too at one time. So science can right. it's not always a negative thing. However, at this time, his what he how he describes science or what he starts to view science as 
is almost by definition a negative thing for his warped kind of worldview. So, yeah, well, it's very fatalistic, right? I mean, there is yeah. no other outcome for these people. There's nothing I can do to help them. I'm not going to go get pizza and beer with these yeah. this, these people that are basically cogs. Not cog cogs, but, you know, you know what I'm getting at. I do know you're getting at, Marie. All right, so this is a quote. Now, again, a lot of what we know about what Kaczynski thought about stuff, we get from his manifesto, right? Mm. And it's kind of funny because, you know, we can't, we're going to talk about the manifesto more this episode, but the manifesto in some ways starts to come off. If, if you know the history around who is writing this manifesto, it starts to become like a laundry list of complaints. You know what I mean? Like he complains about how uh, airplanes are ruining nature. And it's because where he lived, there was an airline, uh, there was an airplane route that went right above his cabin. So, like, you know, he would hear airplanes sometimes and just get raging mad, right? And be like, stupid airplanes ruining my, ruining my cabin. And then he'd go and write it up in his manifesto, right? He complained yes. about, you know, he complained about roads being built and the constant noise of trucks and whatever because he lived not two miles from a major highway, right? Like, this guy, it's, it's, we have this view of him as this kind of, you know, he really lived in the woods. He really went out there and did this thing, whatever. He lived like a quarter mile from the nearest person and he lived near a town. He lived near a highway. He, there was a payphone that he used all the time. Like, yeah. Uh, well, anyways, we're going to get into it. All right. No, so, it, it is it is very um, almost myopic and fatalistic, right? Because it's yeah. like he overhears or he hears the, the he's in the trajectory of hearing uh, airplanes. And that is, you know, and instead of just, grousing about him being like oh you know i can't stand living so close to this da, 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 da. that's what he bombs right that's, it becomes you know? <laughs> it becomes this it's because it's a problem for him it becomes a problem for society it is a right? societal because yeah, he can't Ill. he can't see yeah. he can't see anybody enjoying it and enjoying these things right no he's never the, got any yeah, good from airplanes systemically a problem right yes. that is actually something that is that is more of a problem than like strip mining or whatever yeah. else at the time that actually could be a problem. No, if if Ted Kaczynski was a was a mom from Kansas in the 1980s, he would have been, you know, leading marches against D&D and Metallica. Oh, right. Yes. Like it's the same kind of viewpoint of because I don't like D&D and yeah, or, or <laughs> yeah, actually like taking out like who made D&D? Is that like Hasbro? No, who was uh, that? Like Wizard? No, I think it's its own company, whatever. It, yeah. I don't know. The, those corporate offices would have been getting bombs. Yeah. All right. Not so that that's okay. <laughs> not that it's okay. So his view on uh, professors, it, his hate of professors and colleges comes through very clearly in the manifesto. So he says, quote, university intellectuals constitute the most highly socialized segment of our society and also the most left wing segment. The leftist of the over-socialized type tries to get off his psychological leash and assert his autonomy by rebelling. But usually he is not strong enough to rebel against the most basic values of society, end quote. And then we get a view of what he means or what he thinks about science in this next section here. So, quote, science marches on blindly without regard to the real welfare of the human race or to any other standard, obedient only to the psychological needs of the scientists and of the government officials and corporate executives who provide the funds for research. Industrial technological society cannot be reformed in such a way as to prevent it from progressively narrowing the sphere of human freedom, end quote. <laughs> These are very, again, um, 
so kind of some of the stuff that he means here, right? We can kind of start to unpack it a little bit mm-hmm. by socialized or over socialized. What he means is that you are essentially trained by society to act and think a certain way. And when you cannot, when, but when society's kind of norms and feelings go against your natural psychological needs and your natural physical needs, there is kind of a, there's a friction there. Mm -hmm. And so then from that friction is where we get all of society's ills. Okay. So, you know, you can think of it. So with the physical analogy, and again, this all comes from Murray's views on psychological needs, right? It's all very Henry Murray esque this viewpoint. So he says, you know, if you think about a physical need, if society, you know, if society starves you, if society doesn't give you enough food, you might start to, you might start to turn towards stealing, right? Or murder Mm -hmm. or cannibalism or any number of terrible things, right? That is a problem that has been created by society by its own structure. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, again, also something to bear in mind is he's still, still very, very young, but also has just gone through, you know, in his undergrad at Harvard, some pretty rigorous, diabolical, psychological, yeah, damage, <laughs> hammering on him about individuality and all of these things. And again, you know, it's maybe not directly cause and effect, but. It all's adding up to something that's not per se very healthy. The thing that he kind of goes back to over and over again in the manifesto is what he calls the power process. Okay. So the way that the power process is supposed to work or the view of it that he has is that the human mind is set up psychologically in such a way that we want to do work that is rewarding. And the reward of that work should be both physically satisfying in some way, but less that's less important than it being psychologically satisfying. So, you know, you want to be able to um, fulfill a physical need that you have. And by fulfilling that physical need, you will get psychological fulfillment as well. Okay. So Mm -hmm. when, when ancient man was hungry, he would devise a trap or he would go hunting or he would, you know, figure out a way to fish or something. And that would fulfill his need for power because, or his drive for power, because he not only fulfilled that physical need on his own by his own making in some way, but he also did it in such a way that it allowed him to express his freedom as well. Okay. Right. Because no one else did it for him. He actually was the one to do this physical thing. He actually got this thing out there, whatever. Right. And so he, he will argue that that natural state for humans is hunting, gathering, subsisting off the land. It's causation. And, and creating I do something and it has a direct effect. And I, exactly. am, I am the governance of that direct effect. And it, exactly. it gives me gratification. Yeah. Right. That you have autonomy over whether or not you live or die in a very real sense in that system. Yes. Right? What he says that society has done to us over time is that we have now given up that autonomy by we no longer have to hunt for our own food. We no longer have to farm. We no longer have to worry about keeping ourselves clothed or protecting our families or any number of things, right? 
And so instead, what our minds have done to try and fill that psychological need is turn towards other things that are slightly satisfying, but not satisfying enough. Okay. And so we've turned towards mm-hmm. things like science where we are, we are still going through a power process, but it is a bastardized kind of empty power process. Cause at the end of the day, you don't get anything from that science. Really. There's no effect. Exactly. And so some people say turn to science. Some people turn to drugs. Some people turn to sex. Some people turn to money, right? Uh, capitalism, mm-hmm. kind of the economy itself, right? And so it's that kind of overarching psychological need for motivation or for uh, self, you know, kind of uh, self-importance or feeling important, feeling powerful, feeling, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. you are the one that is creating the technologies of tomorrow, whatever. That is what he is talking about when he talks about science, um, you know, the psychological needs of the scientists. That's what he's talking about there, right? Is that the scientists Mm -hmm. have found this kind of bastardized outlet for their need for the power process to occur. Right. And so, but in doing that, they are, they are in some ways actually harming themselves because it'll never be enough. Right. And so his argument is that if people just, you know, you put down your computer, you did all this stuff, whatever. And we went back to a simpler way of, operating all of society's ills would go away because people would be able to fulfill their psychological need for power. Yeah. Which clearly were mm-hmm. great for him. I mean, he's completely fine in the woods, like not doing crazy yeah. stuff at all. No. Yeah. It looks like it turned out perfectly. <laughs> Wait, going no, but great. I mean, it's like, I think that the, the biggest, like one or one of the biggest flies in the ointment is again, like is the idea of, doing of of serving others or doing good for the greater good right which is a psychological you know again maybe it's altruism but it's still something that motivates some people maybe not kaczynski but maybe certain professors or maybe certain yeah but that's what he's saying though he's saying that that need for doing that's, exactly. He's that's, saying that's that, a contrivance of, of being taken away from with all this technology. But exactly. I would even argue that that doesn't even make sense. I mean, no, he's well, he, he does. He does give allowances. He talks about how, uh, you know, you do, there, that is true in the sense that you want to do good for your small community. Right. Right. So, right. yeah, like if you're a, you know, and there are still like he talks, he says that there are still ways in society that people do have that power cycle fulfilled. Right. Yeah. It's just that it's just that most of what we do doesn't really fulfill us in the way that it should. And so psychologically, we start to turn towards other negative things or we start to have, you know, depression or anxieties or whatever. Yes. There's a lot of flies in uh, Kaczynski's. It's ridiculous. Okay, so so his brother, when he when he decides to quit mathematics, Mm -hmm. his family obviously is very kind of confused. Right. I mean, they're like, what? So this is a quote from kind of from the brother David. So, quote, he was a person who seemed capable of closing doors on things, on people, on stages of his life. That cutting himself off was part of what he was about. At some point, it happened with me. At some point, it happened with our parents. As a kid, he loved his coin collection, and then he stopped collecting the coins. It was also true with a friend of his who would call in high school. 
Hi, it's Mosny. Is Ted around? I don't want to talk to him. You can expand that whole theme of cutting oneself off. End quote. So Ted really decides this is the end of my math career. I'm not doing it anymore. I don't want to be an academic. I want to go off and, you know, I don't think he really even knows at this point what he wants to do. But so it's the summer of 1969 and Kaczynski is 27 years old when he leaves Berkeley. And his decision essentially is, well, I'm going to go live off the land, right? I'm going to go to the woods. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So him and David, uh, who's David is now uh, finishing up his own degree at uh, Columbia, I think. Yes, still very stellar, but not as, yeah, not nearly as a pale comparison in intellect, probably. Sure. So uh, him and David go up to Canada and they go there for a whole summer. They kind of camp around, you know, looking at places, seeing an area where Ted is going to want to stay. Right. And they end up finding a piece of land um, and put in an application for it. But Ted has one of his his shutdowns. Okay, mm-hmm. so this is a this is a quote here. So, quote, they staked out the property to prepare for filing an application for purchase. But then something happened. He became depressed. David said, I saw this a number of times in his life. There must be something triggering it, but I didn't know what it was. Looking back, I'm not sure. I believe it was the day before he was to put in his application for this piece of land. He shut down for a day. There was no interaction. It was like he was unbreachable. But the application was filed and at summer's end, they went home. On the way, they drove through Montana, and both mm-hmm. were struck by the state's natural beauty, end quote. And that's from Prisoner of Rage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they find this piece of land in Canada, and it's interesting that kind of the land itself is almost a, a it's almost a, a link to his brother, right? It's kind of cute in that sense. It would be cute if it wasn't... Um, what's the word? <laughs> It'd be cute if it wasn't, if it didn't go kind of the way it did right it's yeah it is strange like what was did they ever give more of the reason of why he decided why it wasn't canada it just there was just something that just wasn't yeah no so we're gonna get into it so um okay so they basically start to so they're going through whatever they have this thing happen where ted Mm -hmm. has this break right and so um, this is, again, their kind of uh, this is the period where him and David start to break apart. Mm-hmm. And so David says, uh, this is again from kind of my brother, the Unabomber, which is the moment that crystallized this yawning gulf between them came paradoxically at a time when the brothers had never felt more close. It was 1969. They had spent the whole summer together traveling huge distances across Canada in search of a plot of land where Ted could begin his anti-civilization mission. At the end of the trip, as they were driving back to Chicago, they camped overnight in the grasslands of Nebraska. They lie side by side, staring up at the immense night sky stuffed with stars. David felt eager to get home, to familiar things in their, in their mother's home cooking. I wish we were home, he said. Mm. Ted felt the opposite. Really? I wish we didn't have to go back. Mm. So, again, they're waiting now on this... Um, they're waiting on this kind of application from Canada to move to Canada as a U.S. citizen and own this land. All right. Um, so at this point now, David goes back to school and Ted moves in with his parents for a time. Oh, yes. Okay, so now they're in Addison, Illinois. Um, his mother has, at this point since, gotten a bachelor's degree and then a master's and has become an English teacher. 
and his dad is a factory manager at a kind of um what's the word at like a foam cutting factory i guess mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so it's kind of interesting at this point like his parents are like well why don't you get a job and ted's like why don't you get a job you know he's, he does not want he does not want his parents to interfere in his life but he starts he starts writing weird letters to places Okay, so he starts writing letters to like public figures and to the newspapers and talking about how much he hates advertising and, you know, how uh, politicians are using the media to manipulate people and whatever. Yeah, this is where he first definitely starts to have more of a vocal break with societal norms. And so it's kind of it's kind of funny, right? So he writes a letter to the he writes a letter to the Chicago Tribune. Uh, yelling basically about or whatever some Chicago newspaper yelling about advertising and then in the the manifesto we find this nugget quote the average American should be portrayed as a victim of the advertising and marketing industry which has suckered him into buying a lot of junk that he doesn't need and that is very poor compensation for his lost freedom end quote he also writes a couple letters this these ones to the Chicago Tribune complaining about snowmobiles and motorcycles because they're noisy, <laughs> air polluting and they are spoiling nature. And then again, from the uh from the manifesto, quote, technology exacerbates the effects of crowding because it puts increased disruptive powers in people's hands. For example, a variety of noise-making devices, power mowers, radios, motorcycles, etc. If the use of these devices is unrestricted, people who want peace and quiet are frustrated by the noise, end quote. You know, he might have something with that. I will give Kaczynski total leeway with the leaf blowers. (laughs) Seriously, like the leaf blowers are the most... I'm going to just diatribe for for a second here. Like, I don't know with our listeners if you have a lot of experience living next to people that have leaf blowers, but it's like, I don't... like. I don't get it. Like, I don't understand why it is more or less expedient than a rake, which is quieter. I mean, a leaf blower is like the most annoying noise that goes on on like a Saturday morning for yeah, Marie, you can't, two hours. You can't, you can't rake while having your hand down your pants. I guess not, but it's sort of like, what is this? Or like on, this? with your hand, with your hand on this? a beer. What is, why? Oh. And it's like the it's like the yeah. worst noise. Okay, so no, it's a bad noise. All right, uh, coming Pod, back tell, down. I'm gonna put down on my down. list here to tell your husband to look for uh, look for Jesus. spark plugs I mean, it's in like, your, your garage. I All just, right, we have a neighbor that does it, and we have a neighbor that will just like there'll be like one leaf stuck just slightly under the car tire, and instead of just reaching down and just pulling it out, they'll just sit there and try and blow it out with the leaf blower for an addition. And I'm just like, why? Anyways. So. All right. No, it's okay. Woo! So, Marie, anti-leaf blower. Got it. Not going to get a... Yeah, not gonna if you, get if a, you start seeing it? writing from me about like that, like... <laughs> the, leaf, the leaf blower manufacturers are ruining society. Um, okay, so oh, one, okay. one letter in particular that he writes at this time, I think, is, is extremely in, indicative of the future kind of movement of his thinking. And, and really, I mean, it's letters like this that eventually make David... You know, read the Unabomber Manifesto and think, oh, my God, my brother wrote this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this one was published in February 20th, 1970 in the in the Saturday Review, which was a magazine in the Chicago area that reviewed books and the arts. Specifically, what the letter was attacking was highway construction and mm-hmm. automobiles becoming more and more popular. 
But so he writes, he writes there are a couple sections here that I want to quote. So quote, um, perhaps a better solution as opposed to changing the structure of kind of our roadways to increase automobile usage. Perhaps a better solution would be to change the structure of society so that it becomes possible to allow people some of the freedom and independence that they seem to crave. End quote. He also says, quote, a happily married man does not daydream about romantic love. Similarly, a man does not romanticize frontier freedom unless he is suffering from a lack of personal autonomy. Most of the problems are direct or indirect results of the activity of large organizations, corporations, and governments. It is these organizations, after all, that control the structure and development of society. Perhaps the most unfortunate thing that has ever happened to individual liberty was it being used as an excuse for the misdeeds of huge corporations, end quote. So he's he's starting to get kind of more mm-hmm. he's starting to find a a villain. Yeah. Right? He's yeah. starting to find a cause yeah. for all of this evil and all these bad feelings he's had. Yeah. And that that villain is society and corporations that are using science and technology to change society itself. So, okay, finally, Maria, we're at the point of your mm. question before. Canada, mm-hmm. in 1970, says, no, you can't move up here. Mm. Oh, Canada. So they deny his application, and this just devastates Ted. Okay? Now, at this point, David has already graduated from, uh, from Columbia, and he actually has decided to move up to Montana uh, to work in a smelter. Mm-hmm. So uh, David is basically living kind of the lifestyle Ted wants. And so Ted moves up there in 1971. He moves up there out of nowhere. And it's then that uh, Ted and David buy the property that the, that the, the shack ends up being on. Right. Okay. Yep. So um, this is David's recollection of that trip. So quote, though David was the socially adept half of the relationship he continued to idolize and emulate Ted throughout his youth and well into adulthood. He applied for Harvard following in Ted's footsteps, but was rejected. Later, he decided to follow Ted's example and go back to the land. When Ted refused to let him build a second cabin on their shared plot in Montana, David went instead to a wild part of western Texas where, just like his brother, he lived without running water or electricity for eight years in a cabin he built by hand. They would correspond frequently. Two Spartan men in their cabin, Hermitages, 1,000 miles apart. But as time passed, it became clear they were not really communicating and were, in fact, living in wholly separate wildernesses. Kaczynski's vision of Back to the Land was a spiritual journey of discovery towards some inner understanding, whereas Ted's philosophy, his cabinology, was all about getting away from the collective mess of the modern world. There was a despondency, a sorry defeatism in him. You could call the difference between us one between the left brain and the right brain. Ted was hyper-analytical. It's curious that he rejected technology because his way of thinking was very scientific, very binary, end quote. Hmm. So they end up basically living the same kind of lifestyle, right? Very similar, yeah. But it's it's really about, for Ted again, getting away from society that is controlling him. Okay, so uh, and this is from the manifesto, quote, freedom means being in control, either as an individual or as a member of a small group of the life and death issues of one's existence. 
food, clothing, shelter, and defense against whatever threats there may be in one's environment. Freedom means having power. Not the power to control other people, but the power to control the circumstances of one's own life. One does not have freedom if anyone else, especially a large organization, has power over one. End quote. Which is like, I mean, I guess, but like, I have a lot of freedom to do other cool things, though. You know what I mean? Like, like, it's a weird, it's a weird argument. Like, I understand, I understand the idea of, you know, organizations control you to some extent. And so you're, you know, is, is the, um, what's the word? Is choice limited by the wills of someone else? Choice really? Right? Well, if I have the option of buying. Be the case? Well, that's what I'm saying, right? Like, okay, Ted, so. You went from having the choice between, you know, a Big Mac and a Whopper to having the choice between, you know, pooping behind that tree or in the river. Like, I just don't get like, wouldn't you want your choices to be better and more varied? Do you know what I mean? Like, well, or you again, I mean, then you're arguing like free will, right? You're arguing, do you really ever even have a choice? Like, I would argue that Kaczynski, even in, in this day and age, even if he took these actions, you know, and, and you know, got all of his own food, built his own stuff, did all of this stuff, he still didn't feel like he had a choice. He didn't feel free, right? Even though he had gone to such an extreme place to seek freedom, he was still, he still couldn't, he still wasn't free, clearly, because he felt like he had to, almost, you know, lash out and punish and try and destroy other things. So, well, it's so like, here's that's what I don't get. It's sort of like, and then, but is he free? I mean, at some point, no, he's still no. part of a society. He's still part of a fabric and he chose to, you know, go against that. Now he's definitely not free. And I think that that's, no. he might feel the most free that he's ever felt now being incarcerated in some well, regards. Well, yeah, maybe. So, okay. So now he's living inside of a small, mm -hmm. a small cabin. Okay. It's Very 10 small. foot. It's 10 foot by 12 foot. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. but he's, he's not that, he's not that out, like, he's not living really, he's not actually, like, David is living a much more wilderness lifestyle. <laughs> David's cabin is in the middle of, like, a huge plot of land, okay? David has, like, no neighbors. Right. Ted is living, you know, like a 20-minute drive from a, from an interstate, Okay. The town that he lived on, he, Not the to town throw that he, shade, but yeah, the town that he lived in was Lincoln, Montana. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, he lived about maybe like twenty minutes drive from the town. Okay, now he didn't drive; he he rode a bike, but still, that's not super far, right? I mean, a lot of people live, um, a lot of people live pretty close to places like that, right? Mm -hmm. Now. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> He grew his own food, he hunted, he grew potatoes and parsnips, got his own water, had no electricity, all that stuff is true, right? Right, by choice. He would, he he would go, choice. right, and, and actually a lot of people in that area kind of lived that way. Right, okay, You know, yeah. he lived on about, like, $300 a year were his total expenses. Okay, Just so. Very, very, uh, Yeah. That's something. Yeah. Spartan. Yes. Yeah. Very Spartan. Right. So he would bike into town, go to the library, go to the payphone, um, mm -hmm. go to the post office, whatever. And of course, the bus, the bus station, which is infamous uh, now because of what mm -hmm. he used the bus station for. Mm -hmm. 
but it, it's it's kind of interesting because so during the winters he just lives alone, but during the summers he would work some odd jobs. <clears throat> and these it's odd the jobs, mowers, whatevs. Sorry. And these and these odd jobs start to become kind of a pattern for his crimes. Mm-hmm. So he he works once in Salt Lake City, and he's across the street from a computer store that we're going to talk about next episode. Oh, okay. Yes. Another time he's working at a truck stop as a gas station clerk. And he ends up sending a threatening letter to the guy that owns the truck stop, you know, saying, you know, I'm going to, you know, oh, you, you, whatever you missed, you know, you, you lied to me. You didn't pay me enough, whatever. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, s- stuff like that. Right. It's, it's kind of weird. So well, it's also by choice. Again, he's choosing this. He's not poor. No, right? absolutely not. No, that's the His, thing that I think is like. Again, there's there's poverty, there's American poverty that's happening that was rampant then, that's still rampant now. But a mind like Kaczynski could have put towards solving the, no, like, he, the water he, crisis in Flint, per se. Yeah, no, he did not need to be poor. No. Right? Um, yeah. So he's living like this now until 1978. And then he he shows up in Chicago at the door of Dr. Donald Sari a mathematics professor at Northwestern University in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So this guy's in his office and this, this weird kind of like scraggly looking dude is just out there. And he's like, what, like, what does this guy want? He thinks he's there to talk about a lecture series that the professor is putting together. But the guy comes in and says, you know, introduces himself and says, I'd really like you to read a manuscript I'm writing on the dangers of technology for society. And so this is a quote from Dr. Donald Sari. Quote, the first time he just arrived, standing shyly outside my door, and I invited him to come in, the professor recalled. His clothes and awkwardness suggested a working man, but there were odd things about him. He was shy, his social graces were not the best, and he tended to wear working clothes and working shoes. On the other hand, he did not have the firm handshake of someone from the working class. Professor Sari said he thought the man had come to him because he wanted to attend a lecture series. But the man wanted him to read a treatise he had written on the evils of technology. The professor said it had not been his understanding that the man wanted to get his 10 to 20 page treatise published. The professor read it nevertheless. It made an argument that technology was profoundly harming society, he said, but he found the ideas clumsily expressed. The man seemed intelligent, but the professor thought he needed guidance. I'm dealing with a person that I <laughs> think has a future mm-hmm. that sh- I'm dealing with a person that I think has a future that should go back to school. Professor Sari said he's expressing ideas amateurishly. They're not well defined or well thought out, but with going to school, they could be polished. He suggested that Mr. Kaczynski go to the Chicago circle campus of the university of Illinois. It was less expensive than Northwestern. When professor Sari next saw him, Mr. Kaczynski was trembling with rage at his treatment at the Chicago Circle campus of the University of Illinois, where his manuscript had been rejected. He was quite angry, never raised his voice, but he was enraged and he was trembling, Professor Sari recalled. He told me that these highfalutin PhDs had dismissed him from their offices. I guess they had looked over his manuscript and similarly dismissed him. What happened next made a deep impression on the professor. I'll get even, Mr. Kaczynski said, shaking with rage. Professor Sari next saw Mr. Kaczynski at a lecture by a British scholar, Joseph Needham, who had written extensively on the history of science and industry in China. The subject was gunpowder. End quote. 
And that, dear listeners, is where we are going to end part three of our series on the Unabomber. Mm. Next part week, four is, is great. Everything ends well in part four, right? Everything ends well in part four. <laughs> listeners, please join us. Uh, please join us next week uh, for part four, Getting Even. Or if I think of a punnier title, we'll see where we'll see where the comedy takes us, Marie. Oh, yeah. Just a little light humor for oh. for for going into the actual making of bombs. Not that we're, we are not we will not be making bombs nor giving out any sort of instructions or recipes for set bomb making. Let's get that clear right now for our listeners that might have concerns about that. No. And uh, for any FBI agents listening, I do not know or currently am in the possession of things to make bombs. We are not. We are not. not. We are not. <laughs> All right. People barely have milk in the fridge. Let's get real. Let's get real. All right, dear listeners, this is all as always been the Mad Scientist podcast, a damn it, Chippy Productions, uh, everything copyright, all rights reserved, etc. Perpetuity. Yeah. All right. Oot. See you next time. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.